Right, God can function in your dysfunction. Guess what? That's the point for tonight, but I'm going to explain it now. All right, and so you're looking on your talk sheet and you're like, yes, we have more than one blank to fill out, all right? Uh, so we're jumping back in. I'm gonna take a few minutes, I'm gonna catch up, right? Because I assume that not everybody is reading through Genesis with everybody. Uh, it's, by the way, it's still not too late. If you wanna jump into the reading plan, they're back there at the spot, go get you one and you can jump in with us right where you are, no shame, no guilt. But I feel like some of you have not been reading Genesis and so I'm gonna get you caught up on Jacob's story, Okay especially if you were not here last week because I introduced Jacob to everybody, all right? So here, here we go. You ready for this? And go. Jacob was born uh, holding on to the heel of Esau. Esau's the firstborn. They sell their birthright over a cup of stew. After that cup of stew, uh, uh, they go before the father and the father prays for Esau, but it's really Jacob because he's got a hairy arm. They cut off a goat and skin and put it on his arms. And he really thought it was red and all those kind of things. And he gives the birthright to the wrong thing. Esau walks in extremely jealous. Can't believe this just happened. And then there's a family feud. And then Esau heads off into a land. Jacob heads off to a land. He's looking for a wife. You know, Isaac says, hey, go find a wife. Go to the town of Laban. That's where I found a wife. You go find a wife there too. He sees a woman at the well. His name is Rachel. Rachel is very beautiful. And he instantly love at first sight. This is Steve's interpretation, but here you go. So he has this uh, moment with uh, Rachel, ah, ah, goes to find the dad of, uh, of, of Rachel, comes to find out it's Laban. Laban says, yes, but you got to work for so many years, da, 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 da. But Leah, Leah's around. Leah is Rachel's sister. Uh, and instead, when it comes to the end of seven years, and Jacob is serving with there, and so he gives his wife, uh, like he's thinking he's earning the wife of Rachel, but what ends up happening is that uh, Laban gives Leah, drama, oh my gosh, drama's in the Bible. Leah, and, and at that point, Jacob's like, oh my gosh, that's not, this is not what happens. And so once again, there's another swindling. I like the swindle thing because swindle, Jacob tried to swindle the birthright. Now he's being swindled. It's really fun, all right, to think about that. So here it is. He swindled, he goes for another seven years just to win over Rachel. And so now he doesn't have one wife. He has two, two wives. Whew. And at the end of those seven years, Jacob finally gets a, uh, an idea that I'm ready to start a family. I'm ready to venture out on my own. And God tells him to go to Bethel. Bethel is the place where he met God. Oh, I love this. This is so great. Uh, on the way to find a wife. And so he's going back to the place where God was taking him in the very beginning. But on the way, he goes to a little mountain called Mount Seir. It's S-E-I-R, Seir, 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 whatever. So at this mountain, dun, 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 his older brother is living in Mount Seir. And so Jacob has to take his whole family and all of his sheep and goats and all the things and has to walk by this big mountain where his older brother, who hates him because he stole the birthright, and now he has to walk by. And as he realizes, oh my gosh, I'm going by my brother's house. This is going to be really weird. He's going to come out. He's going to kill me. He's writing a story that's so bad. And and that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 28. You ready? Did I catch it all? Or 32, I'm sorry. Yes, Yeah, I think I did, all right? I tried to script that a little bit so that we could all get caught up. <sighs> I'm out of breath. Anybody with me? But you were tracking with me the whole time, weren't you? Yeah, you were, all, you were right there with me, right? Okay, um, that was, by the way, the Steve Spence version, all right? So don't hold me to it. I may have missed a couple of details. But there you go. That's the highlights. Genesis 32. Verse one, here we go. 
Now, as Jacob was on his way, going by the big mountain where his brother lives, right? This is great. Angels meet him on the road. Would anybody be freaked out by that? That's a little phrase in the Bible that's really big. Jacob is headed to Bethel, and God meets him on the road, puts an angel camp in front of him. I don't know if you've ever met an angel. I've never met an angel either. But in this moment, I'm sure it was pretty a uh, uh, freak out kind of moment for Jacob. And just not for Jacob, but can you imagine his whole entourage, right? All of his wives and kids and all the things and oh, there it is. And that moment, Jacob, and when he went and saw them, Jacob said, this is God's camp. So this group of angels became God's camp and that he named it. That's what uh, I'm not even trying to pronounce that word that's up there, but Manat. Okay, there you go. Manahamin. Um, yeah, so he named that place, and then literally that word right there. Um, anybody want to try that one? Okay, there you go. You said it. Um, the, the word, the literal meaning means two camps. That's the Hebrew word for two camps. And so uh, in this moment, God, it's Jacob's camp, and then there's God's camp. And now they are journeying together. Now, if Jacob was in his right mind, he would, which obviously he's not because of the way the story goes. If he was in his right mind, if he would have realized that God was walking with him through this journey, he probably would have taken a different posture. But that's not what Jacob did. Jacob didn't take that posture in realizing that God was with him on this journey. That's not how it happened. And so he keeps on going. Verse 3. It's weird. Then Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He commanded them saying, this is what you shall say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says the following. I have resided in, with Laban and stayed until now. And I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. And I have all sent messengers to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Jacob is scared, right? He doesn't want to reunite with his brother. Why? Because the last time, it wouldn't, didn't go so well. The last time he saw Esau, there is legit 20 years has spanned the time, the last time he saw Esau. That was weird to say that, the last time he saw Esau. Um, and so, that was a tongue twister. I'll let you try to say that. And so, uh, the last time he saw him, it was, it was not good. They were at odds. There was a family feud in that moment. And Jacob remembers that. 20 years has spanned. And so out of fear, Jacob sends all of these things as like a peace offering, right? Send the messengers out. Let them know that I'm coming. I don't want to surprise him because if I surprise him, he'll kill me. And so he sends out this entourage of all of these people and all these donkeys and all these goats and all these riches that he has. He's trying to put them out front. And so he sends it on. Verse 6, and the messengers returned to Jacob saying, Woo, ha, woo, ha. No, that's not what they said. Um, we come to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you. Dun, dun, dun. And he's bringing 400 men. Okay, that's not like a small army, right? That's, that's, that's a pretty big. There's about 250, 300 people in this room. Can you imagine 400 people coming down the, the road, right? That's a Anyway, that's intimidating. And so then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Wouldn't you be? If you have created the story 
that my brother hates me, and now he's sending 400 people out to kill me, right? His heart is racing at this point. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks, the herds, the camels, the two companies. And uh, it, for he had said, if Esau comes to the, with, uh, with one company, attacks it, then the company which he left will escape. Basically what he's doing, he's dividing his, his uh, entourage. And so if one gets killed, I still got something, right? He's going for plan B, right? If one group gets killed, then I've got you know, group B to hang out with me. He's scared, He's making decisions out of fear. He's so fearful of what Esau is going to do to him. <laughs> that's, that's kind of fun. Uh, to even think about how that relates to us. Don't we make decisions out of fear a lot of times? This means yes, okay? Uh, a lot of us in this room, we make decisions out of fear. And we let fear you know, kind of direct our decisions. Instead of Doing what God would ask us to do is to walk by faith. Crazy. Remember, what did God do at the very beginning of this journey? Angels are walking with him. He missed that. And you know what? We are like Jacob too. We do the same thing, y'all. <laughs> we do the same thing. We ignore God thinking that we've got it made and we can make the right decision and we can do the right things. We can navigate this dysfunction in my family. Da, 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 da. I can handle this on my own. Jacob is doing exactly what we would do in our own moments. So take heart. God functions in the middle of dysfunction. Let's keep reading. Verse 13, is that where we are? Mm. Or nine. Okay, here we go. Then Jacob said, God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac, Lord who said to me, return your country and to your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the favor and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed the Jordan and now I have become two companies. Save me please from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that I will come and he will come and attack me and the mothers with, their, with the children. For you said... I will assuredly make you prosper and make your descendants as the sand of the sea and too great to be counted. So Jacob is saying to God, this desperate prayer, he's basically tossing up a prayer to God and saying, God, please protect me. Please, you told me the promise. I remember that, please. But in this moment, Jacob is what? He's divided his camp. He's not recognizing. He's throwing up a prayer to God. Please help me, please help me, please help me. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from who he had the gift of his brother Esau, 200 female goats. Whoa, that's a lot of goats. 20 male goats, 200 uh, use, ease, use, okay. um, and 20 rams, 30 milking cows, and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and then 10 male donkeys. Then he placed them uh, under the care of his servant, every flock to him by himself, and he said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put space between the flocks. And he commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is the gift of the Lord to my Lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded all, also the second and the third, and all those following the flock, saying the same thing. Okay? Here it is. A lot of words here. Basically is, I'm putting everything out and I'm staying back. That's Jacob. 
I'm so scared of losing my life. I'm going to put everybody else in front. They will take the brunt of the wrath of Esau so that I'm spared. Do you see his selfishness? Do you see the pride in him? (laughs) He knows what to do, but he's not doing it. He knows what's right, but he's not doing it. What is right is to trust the Lord. What is right is to allow the angels with him to fight the battle for him. But he's not doing that. He's trying to take matters into his own hands. He's being selfish. He's being prideful. He's saying to himself, this is the strategy that I have created. Thus, I can make this happen. Do you see that? Do you see what Jacob's doing here? (laughs) We do the same thing. I'm going to say it again. We do the same thing. We do the exact same thing. After he sends everybody, I'm going to jump ahead. After he sends everybody out, he's found himself alone by the river. And there at the river, God wrestles with him. We just heard about that with Vic and Alexa. Like you, you right, like right there, God wrestles with him. Why? Why? Why would God do that? I can tell you why. You want to know? This means yes. Yes, Steve, I want to know why. It's because pride was getting in the way and God needed to humble him. Why did God give him a limp to remind him every day of who really is control? To remove that pride. To remove that pride. After he wrestles, I could go so much more into that, but I'm, a, I'm just going to skip over it because for the sake of the story, but here we go. We jump over to chapter 33. Dun, dun, dun. The moment comes when Esau meets his brother Jacob for the first time in 20 years. And Jacob has wrestled with God. He has negotiated with God. He has sent all of his family out in front to protect him. You know, he's done everything he possibly can. All of those things based on fear. And now Esau happens. Then Jacob raises his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming. 400 men with him. So he divided his children, Leah and Rachel, and two slave women. He you know, slave there, and children in the front. That's wild. And Leah and her children next, and then Rachel and Joseph last. Joseph was Rachel's, uh, anyway, it was the cherished son. You're going to hear more about Joseph in the chapters to come. And Joseph there in the back. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground. How many times? How many times? Seven times. Why is Jacob doing that? Why is he bowing seven times? He falls to the ground. Remember, Jacob's got a limp, right? He had wrestled with God. God gave him a limp. Next thing you know, Jacob goes straight to the ground and starts bowing. (laughs) No, don't kill me, right? That's what he's saying. (laughs) He is going as humble as he possibly can. He is so fearful of his life. He is so fearful that he's going to die. But he's bowing, he's bowing, he's bowing, he's bowing. And as he is bowing, verse 4 happens. Then Esau ran to meet him and did what? Did he jab him with a knife? Did he put him in a chokehold? DDT? (laughs) You know, punch him in the gut? No, that was the story that Jacob was writing. The story that Jacob was writing in his head and his heart is that Esau's going to kill me. 
But that's not what happened. Why? Because God can function in the middle of dysfunction. And so Esau, I don't know how he got to this place. We don't know a whole lot about his life. We can read about his genealogy later in Genesis. But the Edomites, they were blessed by God. They learned a lot. But I don't know what happened in the 20-year span between when Jacob and Esau split and then they reunited. But what it says is that Esau hated his birthright, hated his brother. But then all of a sudden, 20 years later, he loves him. I don't know what happened. And there's a big 20-year gap in Esau's life. We know what happened in Jacob's life. But in Esau's life, there's a big gap. But what we do know is that it's completely obvious that God was at work in Esau's life because of how he reacted to his brother. I thought it was always interesting. Why did he put his foot on their neck? Did you see that? So he embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. That just feels weird to me, right? Well, one, Esau was still on the ground, okay? So if you think about it, I'm a visual person. Anybody else a visual person? Reunited and it feels so good. Like there is that moment of slow motion. Jacob is on the ground bowing. Esau's like, no, don't do that, right? He's running over, Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. And he, on the neck, stops him from bowing. It was one of those epiphany moments in my office this week. I had that again. He stops him from bowing and embraces him on the ground. What a reunion. And picks him up and embraces him and kisses him. I don't think it was on the lips, but kisses him. And they wept together because it had been 20 years and God had done something between the two of them. God was functioning in the middle of dysfunction. Guys, that's an amazing story. But we read over it like it's just some like, oh, that's kind of cool. And the way the story goes is that they join forces and they start a a journey to finish the journey that, that Jacob was on to Bethel. And sadly, he doesn't make it there. They go to this city called, I can't even pronounce it, Sukkoth. Sukkoth, is that the, how you pronounce that, Shelly? I don't know. It's at the end there of the chapter. But the literal, literal word of that word, it means booth, four-sided booth. In other words, Jacob set up camp there instead of going on to Bethel. But Esau, in response to this amazing reunion, he says, Jacob, I and my tribe will go out front and protect you as we travel. It's not the other way around. Now the older is serving the younger. Do you see a promise in Scripture? We learned about that last week. The Jacob heal, the younger to ser- or the older to serve the younger, and now it's playing out in this moment. Esau is willingly saying, I want to serve you. I don't know what happened. God did. But there is a major restoration between Jacob and Esau in this moment. And so I, here's, here's what I want, to, I want to recap a couple of things. I want to talk about why God functions in the middle of dysfunction. I'm going to give you four real tidbits on how you can help your family in the middle of dysfunction. And then we're going to go play basketball, okay? So you with me? 
Give me five, 10 minutes and we'll rock and roll. You're right. Yes, Steve, let's fill in the blanks, all right? Uh, blank number one, God functions in the middle of dysfunction. There is a level of dysfunction in every family, y'all. Some greater than others, but in every one of our families, there's a level of dysfunction. Hey, we, we don't get it right. We are not perfect people. We are sinful people. We are evil to the core. That is the picture of humanity, always has been since Genesis 3. We don't have it right, and there's nobody in our families that's perfect. Not you. Take, take yourself off the throne of your life, okay? Take th yourself off the throne of your family, that you believe that you're perfect and everybody else isn't. I'm sorry I'm throwing a little shade here. But that's true of us, and it's true of me. Oh, that's so true of me. I won't talk about you anymore. I'll talk about me, okay? I'm not perfect, and I'm not a perfect dad. I'm not a perfect husband. I don't make the right choices. I don't make the right decisions. Man, I try really hard, right? And I think you guys do too. Y'all try really hard. But you don't get it right. You don't get it perfect. But praise God, we have a family Amen. that we can exercise some of those things, and we can learn from our mistakes, and we can grow. Because outside of the family, what, what do we have? We're left to our own devices. We're left to our own sinful nature. If we live out on our own without our family, there's nothing, like, there's no wisdom there. There's no shelter there. There's no support there. But that's not how God designed it. God designed the family on purpose. I think Jacob and Esau learned a valuable lesson. I think God taught them a lot about what it means to be family. And we see that even in this reunion. We saw it at the beginning in the dysfunction, right? Last week, that whole dysfunction thing. And then now we see in this sweet you know, reunion, God is at work in the middle of our dysfunction. He always is. God was present the whole time. And I want to say this, and I hope this rings true in your own heart and your life. What's true about this story is that God did not run or leave because of the dysfunction. Some of you have got a twisted mentality that because things are going so bad in your family that God doesn't love you and that God's not present. But that's not true. That's not we know about this story nor any other story in Scripture. We see that God was present the whole time. He didn't leave him. The evidence of that is just how God led him to Rachel, how God led him to Bethel, how God led him to wrestle, how God put angels in his camp, right? This is the presence of God through the whole story. God was not absent, and he's not absent from your family either. And some of us need to kind of change the perspective in our head and our heart of what we believe about God and how, what we're going through. But Steve, why would a loving God make it so hard? We'll talk about that in a minute. But God was present. And during those 20 years, and here's what, I, here's what I've learned about family. I'm gonna give you the front row talk. How many of you heard the front row talk? Anybody heard the front row talk? Some of you have heard? Caleb and I have had that conversation. Here's the front row talk. You ready for this? This will blow your mind. Family is so important to us and we don't even realize it. 
and I'll prove it. Who's sitting on the front row at your funeral or at any funeral? Who's sitting on the front row? Your family. Is your best friend on the front row? Is your coach? I've been to a lot of funerals, a lot. I've never seen the best friend on the front row. I have buried teenagers. I've never seen their best friend on the front row of funerals. Guys, who's on your front row? Even at your wedding, who's on your front row? Family. Y'all, your family's important to you whether you like it or not. Your family is so valuable to you and you are so valuable to your family that that is true every single time. Your family is never sitting on the back row of those events. Never. They're always sitting on the front row. And so if that is true, then how I treat and how I value the people in the front row of my life really matter. Really matter. How you love them, how you try to seek forgiveness, how you try to build bridges, you try everything you can to maintain that relationship because it's so valuable to all of us. That's the front row talk. You might want to write that in your notes. Remember the front row talk. Remember who's on my front row. Here we go, four things. What are some of the lessons that we can learn from Jacob and Esau's story? One, value family. Value family. They are important to us. God placed the family in such high value from the very beginning. Adam and Eve. It wasn't good for Adam to be alone, so he created Eve, a companion. And dun, 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 the family has begun. From the very beginning, God created the family and has instituted the family, the place for us to grow, to mature, the, the place where we learn about the Lord. God orchestrated and put this together as family is a big deal to us. It's a place for food, shelter, companionship, support. I'll never forget support. I'm gonna talk about that one. I'll never forget this. I'm in seventh grade and I'm running the high hurdles at a track meet. And this is in the hot of San Antonio, Texas. And it was... It wasn't like your normal track, y'all. It was, it was like black dirt, all right? It wasn't those foam, squishy, you know, artificial turf, like nice little running track deals. No, uh-uh. Back in the day, it was black dirt, all right? And they put those high hurdles out, and for whatever reason, I'm running high hurdles. Maybe it's just because I had long legs when I was in seventh grade, right? Maybe coach said, hey, he looks like a good candidate. I was the worst, the worst high hurdle runner. I always came in second to last, or maybe even last, like, but coach put me in, and I just did it. I'm in the blocks, ready to go. Ready, set, and I hear in the distance, go, Steven! And I'm like, yeah, that's my dad. <laughs> my dad, this is no joke. We're in the big stadium of, big in those days, but big stadium, and my dad is at the very top, right? And he is yelling at the top of his lungs for me top of his lungs. Maybe that's the reason why I do that. When I go to cheer competitions for Chloe, I'm the one that's yelling the loudest, right? Um, so I'm in the blocks and I'm going, 
oh my gosh, that's my dad. I'm in seventh grade, right? Everything's embarrassing when you're in seventh grade. And I'm in that moment, and dad's just yelled, and I'm like, uh, I'm coming in last, dad. Okay, here we go. Yeah. And I take off running. Um, I would say that would be the best track meet I ever went. No, it wasn't. It was just like, but anyway, they support you, right? They're going to be the ones that are going to yell for you. The family, God created the family for that. God created the family for that. And I, I pray you hear God's desire for you to be in a family. It's so good. Um, which will lead to the next couple points. Point number two, we must be aware of allowing fear to write the story. We learn this in Jacob. Jacob's whole script was fear-based. And it wasn't reality. Guys, we are such good story writers, right? In our head, in our heart, we always jump to the end and we think this is how it's going to happen. And so because I know how it's going to happen, how I think I know it's going to happen, then I'll paralyze in fear and won't do anything. And I'm going to prove it to you how good you are at writing a story. You ready for this? Because all of us are story writers. All of us. We're crafty at it. I'm going to prove it. You're in a good conversation with a with a friend, I'll say a friend, um, on text message. And it's like, it's going back and forth, man. This is like, you know, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And you ask them a question, right? It's like this deep question. And you're like, you know, I don't know what you're talking about a guy. Maybe two girls are talking, you're talking about a guy, right? And they're going back and forth. Do you think he likes me? Question mark. Okay? Because that's a question that all the girls ask each other. Do you think he likes me? And you get to that question, right? And then... I'm going to prove the story writing. Here you go. Ready for this? You see the three dots, right? You see the three dots. Get this. And then the three dots disappear with no bubble. What did you just do? You wrote a story, didn't you? Right there, the three dots. You really did. It went, oh my gosh, she, he doesn't like me. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. What have I said? What did I do? How did I get to the police? I just you wrote it right there in your story and you did it in two seconds, right? And then all of a sudden the, the, the dot pops up and it's like, yes, he does. Oh, oh, I wrote the story. Y'all, we are great story writers. Did I just prove it? Did I just prove it? Y'all, this is what we do. This is what we do. And here's the truth. We take that same principle, we take that same fear principle, and we place it on even the dysfunction of our family. If we see dysfunction in our family, we write the story to the end. And probably one of the scripts that we write is that God doesn't love me. And that's not true. You write the script in your heart. I'm abandoned. I'm lonely. I'm nobody. I'm worthless. You jump to the drastic end. And that's not true. It's not. If only we would ask curious questions about how we feel to trusted people that would help us guide us through it. Oh, the fear would drop and the anxiety would cease. You gotta beware of writing this this dysfunctional story about your family or even the dysfunction that's going on in your family. Because here's what I know to be true. And I've been doing this a long time, been working with teenagers for a long time. It's not always gonna be this way. You're not always gonna feel this way. You need to be patient with God 
Because here's what I know to be true, is that the story that God would have for you at this point is going to look way different way down there. But it's not because you wrote the story, it's because God wrote it. And if we would only be patient and trust the Lord with every season that we go through, what you'll see in the very end is a patient and loving God who had the whole thing under control. And I see this over and over and over again. Shelly and I work with families. We work with students. And for years, we have seen this to be true. And I can't give you that advice more lovingly, is that it's not always going to be this way. If you would be patient with yourself and you would trust the Lord. And yes, there's some steps. I'm going to give you some steps that you can do. But if you would just be patient and trust the Lord, it's not always going to be this way. Whatever the dysfunction is, all of us have a level of dysfunction in our family. No matter how tragic you think it is or how bad it can be, it's not always going to be that way. And I hope that's hope for you. I hope that's an encouragement to you that I just need to be patient with God and be patient with myself. Everybody still good? Still good? Number three, trust the Lord with your family. Be aware of writing the story. Trust the Lord with your family. I already talked a little bit about this. You have to remember that God functions in the middle of dysfunction. He always does. It's great in this story with Jacob and Esau, we get the luxury of seeing the whole story. But for Jacob, it was writing it in the moment. He was experiencing it in the moment. We get the picture, you know, the, the several chapters in Genesis to see exactly what the end of the story was. And we can see the thread of God, of his providence and his provision and his promises all throughout Jacob's life. Because Jacob becomes one of the big four, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, the big four. Why? It's because God proved himself to be faithful to Jacob. And Jacob proved in the totality of his life to be faithful to God. Oh, he had his moments just like we do. But in the totality of his life, he proved to be faithful to God. We have to trust the Lord. It is a classic Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to be completely upfront with you. These are Jesus dude questions, all right? I'm going to be straight with you. But these are great questions to ask yourself about whether do I, do I really trust God with the dysfunction in my family? Here you go. Ready for this? I'm just preparing your heart. To depend on him more, sometimes... God uses dysfunction in your family to draw him closer to him. You may be experiencing the dysfunction in your family because God desires to bring you closer to him. Not for you to run. Do you believe God can function in the middle of your dysfunction? Do you believe that? Because how you answer that question, yes or no, determines the full extent of your trust in him. Do you believe that God can function in the middle of your dysfunction? Do you believe that? And the simple answer is yes or no. And if you answer yes, then that reveals a level of trust that you have that the Lord is going to heal it. If you're in the pit of your stomach saying no, then it reveals that you do not trust the Lord to handle it. Maybe you think your dysfunction is so bad. How in the world? 
Is there a dysfunction that God can't heal? How you answer that question is what you perceive and think about God. Apologetics with Steve. Ready? Here we go. (laughs) Number four, last one. Trust the Lord with your family. Number four, do the hard work of forgiveness. Do the hard work of forgiveness. It's a big deal when the family member hurts us. Yes, there's a difference between abuse and dysfunction. I want to talk about that. You can be in a family, an abusive family, and I'll differentiate the two for you. Abuse, obviously, is uh, causing physical harm to you. Maybe a family member is abusing you physically, either beating you or a lot of the times abuse is emotional abuse, verbal abuse. A verbal abuse is not, you guys, verbal abuse is like an outright drag down, you are the worthless person of the world kind of thing. It's not, you made a mistake, right? That's not verbal abuse. It's a teardown. That's abuse. That's verbal abuse. And in those cases, if you feel like abuse is happening, then there are professionals that are available to you, me and my wife included, both of us, we would be happy to help navigate that with you and your family in the most godly and the most confidential way. We would be honored to be able to help you out in that, in that regard. But dysfunction at a level of he, my, me and my brother are always at odds, right? That's the Jacob and Esau story, right? That level is dysfunction. And at that level, there is a couple of things in the way that forgiveness and how we treat each other can really help the dynamics of that dysfunction. Everybody tracking with me so far so good? Okay. Um, and so there is a level of dysfunction in every family, and many times it means that we need to do the work of forgiveness of the wrongs and to seek to heal the hurts. How do you exercise forgiveness in your family? I'm going to give you a couple of tips. They're not on your talk sheet. Maybe put it in the notes and quotes at the bottom. One, prayer. Prayer is a great way to exercise forgiveness. Lay the person that you have a grudge against or you have a bitterness against, lay them at the foot of Jesus. Let Jesus do the work in their hearts, and then you begin to pray for your own self. God, change my heart. I have a lot of bitterness. I have a lot of anger. I have a lot of things against this person in my family. And prayer, confession, that's another role. Prayer, second one is confession of your role in the situation. God, I know I contributed to this. I know it was my fault. Own it. Get to that place where you confess your own role. And then be honest. That's the next step, is to be honest about your feelings. Be honest about your thoughts. Be honest about your actions and seek to, with your parents, sit with them, talk with them, and engage in a kind and loving conversation in such a way that the tension in the room does not get elevated. Be humble. Be kind with your words, but be truthful in how you express them. Don't hide behind vagueness or exaggerations. Speak the truth about how you feel and how it how you are experiencing that dysfunction in your family. Forgiveness is a real thing, and it can be used to bring about healing in the dysfunction of your family and bring peace in the middle of it. 
And here's the most beautiful thing, is that when we choose to forgive, God is most glorified. Because here's the truth, and this is the truth of the gospel. Christ died on the cross, the payment of your sin, that if you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, right, that you will be saved. And it is the most beautiful expression of forgiveness of sin that you will ever see. It is sacrificial and it is full of love. And if we would take that same kind of perspective as we seek to forgive our family members in the middle of dysfunction, oh, you, you are glorifying the Lord in all of that. I'm not saying you need to be a doormat. That's not what I'm telling you to be. I'm telling you to be humble, to speak your feelings, be truthful and honest and loving. And you do the work of forgiveness. You do the work of forgiveness. Don't sit there and point the finger at everybody else and say, you need to forgive me. It's all you. You need forgiveness from Jesus. You know, that, that's, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness starts here. And then it is given to the people around us. Y'all straight? You good? I got one minute and I want to give you one last thing, right? It's not on your talk, but I want to give you a final thought and then I'll be done. And this is a hard question, y'all. I wrote this about an hour and a half ago because the Lord just laid it on my heart. And I'm gonna ask you a hard question. I feel like the Lord wants me to ask it. And I think every one of us need to wrestle with this. Are you and your sinful desires, oh, please hear my heart here. Are you and your sinful desires the reason for the dysfunction in your family? That's a hard question. And it's hard for one reason. It's because we as students, as teenagers, we think we're always right. And we never admit when we're wrong. I never did when I was a teenager. I never admitted wrong because it was everybody else's fault. Always is. And me and my brother were 18 months apart, so you better believe we were like this. I mean, we had so many fist fights. And guess what? It was never my fault. It was always his. Even though I may have, it was always his. Y'all, if that's true, and as I ask that question, and if you're finding that your actions, that your sinful desires are causing the function, dysfunction in your family, I want to lovingly come alongside you and give you some advice. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I can as lovingly as I can come alongside you and say, hey, you might want to try this. And it's three things. Ready? One, stop and reflect on your own actions. Stop and reflect on your own actions. What am I doing that's causing this dysfunction? Is it my words? Is it my actions? Is it my attitude? Is it my addiction? Is it, you want me to keep going? Is it my, it's your fault. Right? That's what we all do. When mom is confronting us about the sinful things that we're doing, no. Yeah? <laughs> I did it. I'm speaking of me, right? I'm just not saying anything about you. It's all about me. 
I would bark, I would yell, I would deflect, I would do everything I can not to point the finger here because pride, my pride would not let me. So the first thing is to stop and to reflect on your own actions. Number two, own it. Own it. And owning it means confessing it. First, you confess it to God. God, I'm so sorry for my sinful actions and the dysfunction that it's causing. And then you take the next step, and this is the hard work of forgiveness, is that you go to your parents and you, you confess it to them. Mom, Dad, I'm so sorry this is my fault. And I'm owning it in this moment. And after you pick your parents up off the floor because you simply said that, because they're like, oh my gosh, this is nothing. I can't believe he said that. I can't believe she said that. You know, if I'm, a, I'm done. Like, I'm so, thank you, Jesus. You know, um, that's a parent confession right there. But we need to repent and ask the Lord for forgiveness and then confess and repent to our parents and seek to make that right. And then here's the last step. You ready? Is change it. Don't keep going back to the same thing. If your sinful addiction is causing dysfunction in your family, don't keep going back to it. Like a dog returns to his vomit. That's in the Bible, by the way. Don't be like that. Let your feet do the talking. Don't just spout out lift service and lies. Let your feet do the talking. If you're going to say, I'm not going to look at porn anymore, then guess what? Your feet do the talking. If you're not going to have a bad attitude about everybody in your family, right, that also probably starts with your mouth, but it also is with your feet. Whatever the dysfunction that you may be causing in your own heart, in your own life, in your family, you change it by your feet. Your actions over time rebuilds trust. And I think every one of us want our parents and our people and our family to trust us. And patience over time and change with our feet over time can really help. 